Welcome to The Green Rush, a podcast about the intersection of cannabis, the capital markets, psychedelics, and culture. On a weekly basis, hosts Andon Ho and Nick Opich of KCSA Strategic Communications speak with the business leaders, financial experts, cultural icons, legislators, and generally interesting people moving the cannabis and psychedelics industries forward. This week, Anne and host Emeritus Lewis Goldberg are back for a new episode with special guest Morgan Paxia, co-founder of Poseidon Investment Management. Morgan joins us this week to celebrate Poseidon's 10-year anniversary, detailing the path that led to its founding, sharing some of his favorite accomplishments and plans for the future, as well as his insights and predictions on rescheduling the federal banking movement and investment cycles and opportunities in cannabis. In this episode, Morgan also outlines Poseidon's involvement with David Boyce's lawsuit in Massachusetts, helping to explain what it means for cannabis and how it could affect the industry as a whole. If you're interested in learning more about Morgan and his work with Poseidon, visit the links in our show notes. Also, be sure to follow Poseidon and Morgan on top social media platforms. So sit back and enjoy our conversation with Morgan Paxia of Poseidon Investment Management. Morgan Paxia, it's a great pleasure to be talking to you on The Green Rush. Um, you have been one of the most um, influential and long-lasting investors in the cannabis space. And, you know, while we want to get into, like, the, the state of the industry and what's going on, you know, we're recording this on November 10th of 2023. And recently, um, a big lawsuit was dropped, led by David Boyce, um, of which you guys are backing. Can you give us a little of just some what the suit's about and then what your guys' role with Poseidon is with the suit? Sure. Well, thank you for having me on. Uh, it's great to be chatting with you all today. Uh, basically, well, uh, first I would give credit to uh, Abner Curtin, uh, chairman of, of Ascend Wellness, who is really kind of the, the original uh, you know, person that came up with this idea of Hey, this looks like something that Boys Schiller has done in the past around, um, well, I guess you could say around gay marriage. You could say around uh, uh, the gambling, uh, you know, state to state uh, uh, online gambling. Um, so, areas that they've had expertise, taking it the judicial path, taking it all the way, and making change happen where um, the legislative branches of this country have, you know, basically failed to to do their jobs. Um, so he, he recognized that this feels very similar to that and started a process. Emily, my sister and co-founder of Poseidon, um, funny enough, when we were kids, she thought she was going to be a lawyer. So she's always kind of had a passion for law and, uh, which is, she and I have amazingly different brains in a lot of different aspects and it's great. I think that's part of what makes us a great team. Um, but um, she, she really like quickly, like locked in on this. It was like, yes, I totally agree. And, and so, um, trying to get this industry to coalesce around a single idea is a pretty monumentous effort. Um, we're all working on different things. We all have different views. That's partially why, 
you could say we've not seen progress in DC is because a lot of companies show up in DC and have, you know, different wants and needs. And so Congress just is really easy for them to say, well, I don't know what you guys want and they just don't do anything. So anyway, um, this lawsuit has been building for quite some time. They went through a rigorous process talking with different you know, law firms and you know, groups to see who would be willing to come in and do this. And, you know, Verano was obviously a, a lead plaintiff on the case. Um, so they too, um, you know, saw this and really saw the benefit of doing something. Kind of the, the, the simplistic view of it is we have now, because Ohio just voted, uh, 24 adult use legal states. More than half the country lives in adult use legal cannabis markets. And the federal government's position is that cannabis is still federally illegal. And their enforcement around that has been completely inconsistent. And so Boys Chiller is basically saying that they need to clarify their position and basically say, get out of the states that have legalized it and let them do it. And the companies that are operating within those states, intrastate, not interstate, intrastate, should be treated like real businesses and not be subject to this, you know, insane 280E tax code. They should just be treated like real businesses that are licensed and operating in their states and let the states manage that. And that's really the simplistic view of it. Uh, the benefit is for all operators. These are for individually owned retail stores, you know, the mom and pops, as they call them, to the large operators. Everyone is subject to the same onerous tax code. Um, and it's killed a lot of American businesses as a result because they just can't overcome that um, onerous tax that just sucks away all the free cash flow for the most part from these businesses. And, uh, and it's time for change. You know, Poseidon's been around for 10 years investing in this industry. Um, it's the same amount of time that banking reform has been trying to get done in D.C. Nothing's happened. Um, we know folks are working on it and that's great that they're working on it, but it's, I think it's really important that there's, you know, this, this additional effort pressure point to try to create change that is needed in cannabis. Um, so it's incredible to have a law firm of such caliber, uh, that sees this opportunity as well. Um, that's putting their name on it and putting their time behind it. Um, we certainly need more of the industry to support this initiative. It's not a low cost initiative. Um, so, if there are groups that want to get involved, uh, we certainly say, please reach out and be a part of this because this is a benefit for all. Um, this doesn't just benefit operating companies, sure, it benefits them directly initially. But if you unlock that free cash flow instead of shipping it off to the government, think about the reinvestment they can make in more growth, more jobs. Uh, think about the ancillary companies that would also benefit from, you know, that kind of derivative effect of the core businesses being more healthy and more profitable. So this is a, and that's why actually uh, one of our longtime investments in our first fund uh, work, which is an industry leading um, human capital, uh, you know, HR payroll management services company is also a part of uh, supporting this initiative um, because obviously they see it, they see how their companies are doing, who's growing, who's not like where they're, where's the pressure points they want to support their companies and be a part of trying to be a, a change agent. So that's, that's kind of the, the nitty gritty of it. Why does this not encompass interstate commerce? Because if, if a, if a company is state legal, doesn't the interstate commerce act say that the federal government then cannot enjoin intra interstate commerce like if it says like i'm in massachusetts 
and I'm co- it's kosher in Massachusetts, they can't stop me from doing business in Rhode Island. So wouldn't this fundamentally then allow for if if what you are asking for happens, allow for interstate commerce also to happen? Uh, from my understanding, no, uh, because we're not asking. That's not the change we're focused on. We're just focused on the businesses as they exist today. Um, that would change all kinds of different dynamics um, because now you are talking about federal regulation. Uh, if you're moving things between states, now there should that that is a whole nother layer. We're just saying like as it exists with these states that are legalizing it, let them be, and I think that's fine. I mean, I think the states still have a tremendous amount to learn around managing a regulatory program, um, where they're still trying to figure out how many licenses they should have. Like, think about how many times every state overbuilds or overlicenses too much capacity. We see this huge decline in in pricing. Companies go out of business, you know, because at the end of the day, upstream, uh, the plant itself is a commodity and high prices bring supply. It's just, you know, human nature. We can't help ourselves, but do the same thing over and over again. Um, but states need to figure this out. They also need to figure out their caps where they have states like take Massachusetts. So what is it? A five-store cap. Um, some of these individual doors are closing because there's no buyers for these doors. Some of these municipalities may lose legal access altogether. What happens? The illicit market swoops right in or this hemp-derived D9 market swoops in. It's not good. So these states need to be evolving and adapting. And and so, you know, just managing their existing program, I think, is more than enough um, versus trying to add in a new layer of interstate commerce where you would all of a sudden have new product flooding in. Like, let's just take the example of what's going on with California and New York. Um, California's shipping out tremendous amounts of product illegally to New York and New York is struggling. I mean, that, that program has been a disaster from a regulatory perspective anyway. Um, and, and as a result, there's been all this illegal product flowing in. Um, and it's actually legally, some of this product is actually legally, uh, uh, grown and processed. And, but then from that point on, it becomes illegal and now it's ending up in New York. Anyway, that's so my my view is like we're just I don't think we're ready as an industry. We're too immature. There's too much to learn before interstate commerce should really be part of the discussion. And I don't think federal legalization is is probably decades away, really. I have one more follow up because all this kind of flows into the the just the really uh, uniquely fucked up nature of this industry. And yes, you can curse. Um, OK, good. OK. Yeah. So. You know, what you were describing is in these each state functionally is its own country. And if I am Verano or Ascend or Cureleaf or or any multi-state operator, I have to build an entire vertical processing capability in each state. Cultivation, processing, transportation, distribution, retail. That adds an, an incredible layer of both inefficiency and cost that is then shared through the consumer. When you were describing what's happening between California and New York, isn't it ultimately in the best interest of the consumer or hopefully the patient, because this was an industry that was initially started as a medical industry, even though it's pretty much been forgotten that the patient is important, but isn't it not ultimately in the best interest of the consumer and patient to dismantle that ver- that state by state vertical nature, and would the MSOs allow themselves to do that because they've sunk hundreds of millions of dollars into this? 
Like, yep. you know, if I'm Cureleaf and I've built out a vertical processing facility in Illinois and, and in Massachusetts and, you know, in each of the other states, how do I walk away from that? Like, how does, how does this all get unwound? It's going to be a, it's going to be a process. Uh, I'm not, I'm not. Uh, so, well, a couple of things. One, I mean, if you look, Cureleaf has exited five states at this point. So they've already been rationalizing their footprint and, and focusing on areas where, um, where their vertical is working. Um, two, you're also hearing, a, you know, this, we're, we're deep in the earnings calls, uh, the Q3 earnings. Um, you're hearing operators talking more mature about their capital allocation, their capacity, being very thoughtful about how much capacity they're building relative to their footprint and what's their wholesale. Um, and they're doing this in all these different markets. Some they're seeing more opportunity and, and they're not. And it's like, ultimately I do see centralization of, you know, parts of the supply chain. Um, that's just a, a long-term natural thing. But that's why I don't think it's, I, I wouldn't be surprised if it's decades away. Um, and so groups that are potentially building capacity today, like some in California, believing interstate commerce is in the near term, I think are going to struggle significantly because I just don't see this happening. So the operators may, you know, Lewis, your point, the operators may be protectionist, but the states are too because the states don't want to lose those jobs. They don't want to lose the tax revenue. So if they all of a sudden open up interstate commerce, to your point, there's going to be hundreds of millions of dollars of uh, facilities that are going to go, you know, they're going to go dark. Um, look at like, you know, come back to Massachusetts. I lived in New England for a long time. Um, but, you know, you drive through Fall River and there are, you know, tons of these old, amazing brick fortresses that were the textile industry that are still largely dormant, you know, that there's, how do you relight those things? Um, and so I think states are going to be slow to open up interstate commerce as well. Even if we did have it legal, what is their reason for allowing it to happen too? I think it'll be a choice, you know, just like the alcohol industry. Think about when prohibition ended and you still think of all the crazy, uh, um, you know, kind of moving around of certain alcohol, like shipping wine from California, for example, some states, you can't even do it. Um, still today. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of residual and I, and I don't expect cannabis to be any different from that. Um, and you, you know, you hear about this in other industries too, um, just not alcohol. Um, Emily was just at a, uh, a conference, really interesting conference with one of our portfolio companies, um, that does, um, compliance technology. And they were just, you know, and talking about like major companies and how, complicated it is because even compliance state to state is different and so they have to be adaptive and so you know it's like this panacea of of just like you know all weed will be grown in california and then distributed across the country um i don't i don't know if that's you know potentially even in my lifetime but maybe ultimately you're a young man (laughs) how does the dea um and their pending decision factor into all of this. I mean, if it goes to schedule three, like HHS recommended, you know, things mm-hmm. like 280 go away. So does that take a little bit of the, the teeth out of the, the lawsuit? Is it redundant? I guess, how does that factor in? Or are we just, there's just, we're throwing everything at the wall here. 
Um, no, there's certainly still elements of uh, what it'll help if rescheduling. And we do believe that it's a good probability and a probability that could happen near term, whether that's, you know, year end or next year. It seems like that is a, a very good probability and it's hugely beneficial for these companies to not have to pay 280E anymore. Um, it does not change the fact that it's still federally illegal. Um, so there's still going to be work to be done, but at least these companies will be much more viable businesses. Um, but I do think it's going to change the game a lot though, uh, because without 280E, uh, you could actually see pricing, you know, to Lewis's point about, um, you know, getting the price down, we could see a lot of price uh, continue to go lower because these businesses could just have, um, you know, much more efficient operations. So money. Even if, <laughs> yeah, money. So even if their gross margin profile goes down um, and they could have an SG&A profile, you know, their net margin would go up so much that they could sustain lower pricing, which is ultimately good for the um the consumer at the end of the day. And, you know, we were talking about this the other day with, um, you know, this hemp derived uh, Delta nine, you know, it, it was like a, a non event a couple of years ago. And now we're potentially a $5 billion industry in the U S with this completely unregulated uh, space because it's, it's benefiting from this supposed farm bill loophole. Mm -hmm. uh, the legal cannabis industry is what 30 billion ish. I think this year, so, you know, Delta 9 is, uh, Hemp Drive Delta 9 has swooped in and taken some of the potential market share from maybe the illicit market because it definitely does better in states that are not legal or states that are, are legal but have been very slow with their access rollout, getting retail open. But the largest competitor remains the illicit market, which we think is somewhere around 50 billion, maybe. That's what I've heard. I have no idea how to substantiate the illicit market size. <laughs> But that's what we need to be going after. And so, you know, having businesses that can thrive at a lower price environment, would that's where we see the big conversion. And so, you know, it's important to make sure the legal market is, is doing well and is, is um, giving a fair shot and being thoughtfully regulated and taxed. Um, uh, and that's where, you know, rescheduling will help. But, yeah, the lawsuit still has a lot of merit beyond, beyond that. Uh, you guys run a venture fund in the cannabis space, and there are others in the, the space, Merida's and the Entourage Effect Capitals. And, you know, you, all of your fund ones did really, really well, you know, because you guys got in so early into the industry that, like, you threw dart at a dartboard and you, you, you almost couldn't miss. Fund two, fund three have been much more challenged um, because the capital structure of the markets have contracted. The competition has increased. The impacts of 280E have been massive. You know, this lawsuit and the change potentially in rescheduling would potentially have a phenomenal impact on your current portfolios. Have you and Emily thought about, okay, what does it like if this happens, if 280E goes away, what is the impact on our funds and what is the impact specifically on our portfolio companies? And how have you been thinking about that? Yeah, the, the first thing that comes to mind is liquidity. We have been in, in such a drought for so long uh, where there's just the movement of money has, has ground to a halt. And this is something like, where are we, 20-something months or however long it's More. been? It's been a lifetime 
where M&A like cash exits um, have been non-existent. Fund, as to your point, fund one, you know, I remember like for years, we would have liquidity. It was incredible. We would have exits, we'd recycle, we'd reinvest. It was amazing. Um, and that's what you'd like to see. Back then it was, um, we had a lot more custody for public companies in the space. You had a lot more liquidity in the public market. So public companies were more active. Just the system was functioning. And that's, you know, slowly been ground down so much uh, that it's really hurt the ability for companies to exit. So that's the first thing I would think will be a meaningful change because, you know, these companies will look so much different than they do today. Uh, you know, the credit worthiness of them changes overnight, basically. Um, the participants that might want to underwrite these companies can all, you know, can all of a sudden expand. Private equity all of a sudden can see cash flow, right? Private equity has been completely absent for the most part in this space. So they might, you know, become participants. We could just see a whole new, we maybe see strategics coming in. Um, there are ways of structuring investments into these companies for mainstream even in the current way we are today, they're just waiting. There's there's no reason for them to rush. I mean, look what just uh, British American Tobacco just put what another hundred million US into Organogram, a Canadian company. You don't think they would want to put some of that capital into work in the US? They do, just like um, other companies. But that's where they can right now. So liquidity uh, uh, gets things moving again. Um, companies can exit. Uh, investor capital can be returned. They can then choose to reinvest or take capital. You know what I mean? But it just allows the system to start functioning again. I'm not thinking that it's necessarily going to mean like a, uh, you know, people are going to start paying 100x multiples. I, I think those days are long gone. Uh, Silicon Valley, I think, sufficiently uh, destroyed that um, with, a, you know, they've got their whole world of zombie companies and, and failures happening on a daily basis. So there's definitely just a cooled, uh, normalized something we know very well in cannabis valuations are much, much more normalized. Um, still too high in some aspects, um, as because we are still trying to deploy capital, and it's been incredibly frustrating where companies are just not being realistic about valuation still. But um, anyway, yeah. So that's what I get excited about though is is liquidity um, because that means options, and options are a good thing. It should be available for every sector of the economy. It comes in waves, but we've been you know, as you mentioned, just like more than 20 months. I don't even know how long it's been because it's just been so damn long. And uh, right before it was before before COVID, right? I mean, literally, I remember at the end of 19, people were talking at the um, MJ BizCon about how it felt like there was this unbelievable contraction and there was no no new money. And we're now like almost four years. It's four years, actually. It is. It's four years. Wow, it's crazy. Insane. That's insane. Um, yeah. You know, and it's, it's for an industry that way that has continued to expand massively. You you mentioned $30 billion of, of sales. Four years ago, it was like 10, maybe less of legal sales. And nobody's investing. And it's this fucked up nature of the regulatory, the federal, like you've got this federal no and states saying yes. And that's that's scary. Yeah. I mean, what it's really is done uh you know as much as they all try to claim championing small business mm -hmm. and social equity is they've given them every disadvantage possible to be a part of the system um it's put a lot of it, it's not uh the fault of you know people like to say like oh big weed 
you're pointing the finger at the wrong, the blame is not on them. They're just doing their, they just had, you know, some of them were just lucky from when they got into the space um, and had capital markets and had the ability to grow, but they've built on that significantly. And so because of this regulatory dynamic or lack thereof, or the failure of DC, um, you know, they've basically created almost like oligopolies in a lot of instances. And I, and, and I just, uh, you know, that's, you can't blame capitalism when you have such a broken uh, federal situation. Yeah, you're playing by the rules of the game as they are. And right. yeah. Um, and there's a lot of so, luck in timing. No one can yeah. plan timing. We can't we can't choose when we were born. <laughs> so uh, actually so I, I'm taking, I did, actually <laughs> uh taking this back to um you know, this is such a fucked up industry. What on earth 10 years ago made you want to, <laughs> to do this? Um, you know, what was the, the, the spark that, um, put you on this, this journey with your sister? Yeah. Yeah. Boy. Oh, spark. See what I did there. I didn't even do that on purpose. I like it. <laughs> yeah. One of our, our longtime California companies. Um, yeah, boy, I, I wish I would have written down what we thought the world would look like 10 years later. Uh, it's amazing. You should do it but, now and open it up in an envelope in uh, 2033. <laughs> when hopefully I'm, <laughs> who knows where I'll be. At <laughs> but yeah, it's a good idea. Um, uh, Emily and I, you know, we lost our parents to cancer when we were uh, young, very young. Um, and uh, when our dad was in hospice care, um, they were big believers in in the war, uh, the, you know, that the war on drugs was was stupid and, should end and our mom was a nutritionist so she did, always knew about hemp where you know it was like a superfood uh, my dad even grew cannabis in the backyard in upstate new york somehow don't know what it was because uh, by the time i was, came around you know that was long gone so he was a cannabis fan and and he actually preferred it over alcohol um, but social norms back then said drink don't smoke weed so that's what you know they kind of made that transition and Anyway, so when he was in hospice, the nurse, a nurse actually offered him some cannabis to try to help, you know, just make him feel better in his final days. And, and he said no, because it was illegal. And so we thought that was fucked up. And uh, even though I was a kid, uh, it just kind of changed our perception. Your parents try to teach you things. Um, but when you hear it from a nurse, it kind of gives you a whole new perspective of things. And so that planted the seed. And then... Uh, Emily was working market research and consulting. I was working in finance, you know, you know, years later and she was spending time in California. She's like, Hey, this is going to be, uh, this is going to be something. I mean, this was like back in, I don't know, 2010, 2011, maybe 2012. Well, we were, we were forming the business in 12. So it was before that, but, um, she's like, this is going to be like a CPG industry. She called it way ahead of the time. And, uh, and Colorado voted to legalize and we're, and I was like, Oh man, there's some penny stocks I remember looking at back then that were all over the place. Um, Arcadian. Just, which one? one? I just Arcadian was one of those. We represented them. They were the first penny stock, the first public cannabis penny stock. Okay. Which is how we got into the space initially. Yeah, I remember like was it like the Terratex and the mm -hmm. the Hemp Bank? That was a real special fraud. Um, but anyway, yeah, it was like crazy stuff. <laughs> Um, but it just, it started the conversation. And so we were like, okay, well, who's going to have any idea of, of trying to figure this out? There's no dedicated, you know, investment firms. Let's, let's go do it. 
Um, no one can say they have any more knowledge of what this investment world is going to look like. doesn't matter if you're, you know, at that time I was like, I don't know, five years into my professional finance career and Emily having good consulting background, market research consulting. And, you know, she's just an incredibly smart person. Um, we just thought we had a great skill set to um, try to tackle this and figured money would want to get behind groups that would just focus on it. And, uh, and we thought it would be something huge. Um, that was really it. I mean, we didn't, we didn't have any idea what it was going to look like or the journey was going to be. Um, I think we were definitely more optimistic about the journey um, that would be ahead. And as it was in the first, you know, several years, it was great. You know, things were progressing nicely. States were opening. Uh, there was good support um, minus the federal level. But there were, like I mentioned, like in the early days, we had more resources than we do today at this industry size we're at, which is just wild uh, that we've actually had such a retrenchment of of federal uh, headwinds, or so I guess an increase of federal headwinds um, in the last several years, um, you know, that really started with the former uh, Attorney General Jeff Sessions when he stripped out key pieces of the Cone memo, and that's really been put us on this path of uh, declining liquidity. And, and, um, and now we have this other Sessions, or something about Sessions in D.C. It's just yeah. a trouble troubled name but this pete, this pete sessions guys this sounds like a real piece of work and you know he's trying to uh trying to introduce i don't know if you saw this but trying to introduce bills and in, in, uh that would say that even if the dea follows precedent and follows hhs and says schedule three he's saying no 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 congress needs to do this so which is absurd right i mean this is supposed to be a scientific-based process mm -hmm which is what they're doing. And now he's saying it's, it's political. And, and, uh, you know, this is, I thought the United States was a democracy and, and I hope it is, uh, you know, cause it's like the kind of the same fear I have a little bit about, um, Ohio, you know, as soon as the voters passed it, because it's a, is it a statutory process versus a constitutional process? Basically that the, the, uh, legislator can, can basically reject it. So even though the people say we want it, um, they can, they're trying to interfere with it. And it's like what we saw with the, uh, Virginia, where they actually did basically stop an adult use program from happening. So it's like so anti-democratic. It's so anti-freedom. Um, yeah. But anyway, point is the journey of the last 10 years is the stuff like this. Like I, I'm, I really don't like politics, but it's so much of our business. It's crazy. I, I, I can't wait to never talk about political stuff again. I don't have to worry about who gets elected at, at such a you know specific level? It's so weird how we've just become single single issue voters, right? And it's like potentially a, we're always making these like huge uh, um, concessions of you know like as an industry, it's like oh if we just get this and we give up everything and then it sucks, right? So, <laughs> and then we have to work so hard to undo it. Uh, can can I ask you a completely so? 10 years ago when you were starting this, I want to ask you hopefully two very good memories. The first check that you took in as an investment in the fund and the first oh, yeah. check that you wrote out when you put money into somebody. You talk a little yeah. bit about those experiences because, you know, we are where we were is not where anybody thought where we would be. And that those heady moments 
where you sat down and somebody slid a check across the table to you or wired you the money or however it got into the account. That must have been such an amazing feeling. And then convert, you know, that next step where you, somebody came in and pitched you for money and you wrote them a half a million dollars or a quarter of a million or a million dollars. And you're like, I'm betting on you because this is what we believe in. That must have also felt absolutely amazing. Um, I absolutely will never forget our first LP. Um, a lawyer, incredible person. Loved that it was a lawyer because it was so early on. And they knew, you know, his position was perceived versus actual risk. And he's like, right now, it's all people are have this perceived risk that this investment is is uh, from a legal perspective is a, is a concern. He's like, it's not. So he and Emily, I think she still to this day saved the voicemail from when he called and said, I'm in. Really? And it, and it still gives me like tingles because it was like that. That was it. That was everything. Um, how much? For us. How, if you, how much was it? Twenty five thousand, fifty thousand, one hundred thousand more. Was, uh, the initial check was fifty. It was a lot more. That's awesome. After that, but that's where. So, but Emily and I were the first money in the fund, so we were already investing. So for us, we were already business was already going. Um, we were we were putting money to work. It was just that. And like, especially if, if you remember January 2014, that was the first pot stock bubble. Well, you do, Lewis, because you were already representing companies. Um, so we made a lot of money right away. Uh, it was so like we were up. I don't even know how much we were up in that first month. I don't remember. Um, but we were making a, a good amount of money, and uh, which was great because, you know, I knew these things were absolute dog shit. Um, they were a lot of them were just frauds, but it was just there was a there was just this enthusiasm and it was great. So we're like, let's play the game. And we took a lot of gains from that first wave. And that's where between that and then as investor money did start to come in, aggressively selling that junk and, and investing in real businesses. We're always trying to like, we, people matter so much, uh, the business, you know, capital structure, capital allocation, governance, you know, things really do matter to us. We just knew we had a moment in time where it was like a, a freebie to generate some return and then really try to go and invest in, in good companies. Um, you know, one of our earliest, uh, I'm trying to remember how, how early uh, was Flowhub. That was an early company for us. And that one was actually, that's, that's kind of one of the more memorable private company investments we made um, even if it wasn't in the first couple of months, um, but it was early on in the fund's life. And, um, I just remember Emily went to do this, uh, uh, like pitch event in Denver, uh, where she was a judge and Arc Kyle, View. no, it wasn't Arcview. It was just like a, um, like almost like a tech event. And Kyle was there pitching a, an idea. And, and I remember her calling and she was like, something about this guy and uh you know so it's been a long journey with kyle and flow hub but very proud of that company very proud of kyle he's grown a lot as a human and as a leader and uh persevered the point of sale is a brutal sector in cannabis and uh, i think he's done a really good job so that was some of that was one of the the best investments can you can you talk about any of the 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 dog shit ones 
<laughs> Your words, not mine. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, so, yeah, I mean, you know, I can I can point to pretty much almost every every company that's failed over the years has been around a governance issue or a lack of of good leadership, um, and which are, are kind of both, right? And you know, when and you can certainly see it when it happens is is when the shareholder is not top of mind, even though they take money mm-hmm. and they have an obligation to the shareholder, they don't give a shit. Unfortunately, that's kind of a a broad culture in venture, and I think that's why you know venture generally, not just cannabis, has a like an eighty percent failure rate. Is there's just they just don't care, um, or it seems like that. Um, there are some that do care and they still fail, but there's a big cohort that just don't have that respect. Um, you know, there was a, a company, let's see, well, one that was well covered in the early days was, uh, unfortunately was a company called Trade. It was an early marketplaces company. And that just went sideways so badly after they had just raised one of the most, it was at the time, I think it was the largest series A in cannabis. Um, and it was pretty much from that moment on, it was gone very quickly. Um, we had, yeah, I mean, there's, what's another good example of that would be, um, do you guys remember the lab company, Steep Hill Worldwide? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah. Well, yes, because they used to advertise on on our uh, podcast and they used to advertise on cannabis oh. radio network. So yeah, I do remember they were a, te- a testing company, right? Testing company. Yeah. And they, yeah, I uh, do remember Steve Hill. Yeah. Great. Uh, the founder, original founders, um, scientists, really smart, had built up a massive amount of data around genetics. You know, they were doing all the testing for Harborside back when Harborside was in its heyday. You know, it was like, a you know, the huge door in Oakland before California was a, a legal market. You know, it was the, the uh, medical market. When I yeah, before it went, like, became state house. Yeah. Yes. Many, many years before that. And so Steve Hill was their primary testing, uh, which Steve D'Angelo actually, you know, that guy was a total visionary. And uh, right, because Harborside. But then he was like, we need a lab. So he basically went and was like, started a lab company, and which was Steve Hill. And I remember early... Um, you know, when it was still a pretty good company, we actually cold called them and said, Hey, are you guys looking for money? Like, this is what we used to do when we were trying to invest in companies. We would call them. Hmm. Do you want money? Wow. <laughs> and they were like, Nope. Click. Wow. So that guy, that one of those founders, he was, he, he got fired. Uh, uh, we found out after the fact, or he left uh, under bad terms, whatever he was gone. So they tried to bring in uh, some leadership and they wanted to grow the business. And so they, uh, one of the newer guys that got involved was like, that's called Poseidon. So they called us back. But we just always remember that, that it was just like, you know, who are you? No, just hung up on us. So we did invest and, but then ultimately it got chicken winged with a pretty crazy situation and uh, yeah, just went totally upside down. Uh, again, no governance, uh, tons of self-dealing happening and, and some of the issues and, and ultimately went bankrupt or just out of business. I mean, I still get emails from investors that are tr- like trying to do stuff around that thing. I'm like, man, that thing is so gone. Um, we were really smart in how we initially had structured an investment in a company. We had structured a basically like a disaggregated convertible note. Um, so we put 
because uh, I did what have does concerns. That mean? What does that mean? Because I, 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 I can guarantee you that if I don't know what that means, probably a lot of other people listening don't know what a disaggregate, disaggregated convertible note is. So there's two pieces to a convertible note. There's the debt itself and the conversion feature to turn it into equity. So it's kind of like debt with an option. Um, and there can be some automatic functions around it turning into equity. And uh, and they were trying to raise equity at the time, and I was not interested. They were trying to do it as in common equity, which has very little protections for a private investor, generally something we don't do. Um, and so I said, okay, well, we'll put some in on this common side of things, but we're going to layer in a senior secured debt. And so that's where I said, like, I basically looked at the two pieces and constructed an investment into the company. Um, our senior debt was great. Company almost at that time almost did, or you know, a year, two years later, maybe almost three years later, um, had almost gone out of business. And we were preparing uh, trucks to go take assets uh, to take the genetic library, because that genetic library was worth for us. It was worth four times our our debt position. Um, they were able to get us paid out. Ultimately, they found a way to pay us out, and then the common went to zero uh, after that. So that, it ultimately did fail. But we we actually made money amazingly because the way you know kept the capital at risk in the common position far less than the debt position. So the debt plus the interest overcame the the capital put on the on the equity side. So are you guys still making investments now? Are, are, are people coming, yep. knocking on your door and you're like evaluating and what kinds of stuff? So, so the answer is yes. Great. So what kinds of deals are you looking at? What kinds of sectors within the cannabis industry are you looking at? And are you doing convertibles? Are you doing safe notes? Um, like what kinds of deals do you like to do and what size? Yeah. Yeah. So our third fund, the garden fund is still actively deploying capital. Um, Fund one is still a hedge fund, so we have the ability of, of doing that, uh, which is great. Uh, the fund has been around, you know, it's about to click its 10-year mark, which is amazing. Um, and uh, But, yeah, so the Garden Fund is still uh, – we're still deploying. Uh, we've been very focused on retail in uh, newer municipalities, new retail, um, mm-hmm. areas that need that um, and trying to come in and, and be help on that. So we've been working a lot in New Jersey. Um, we've got a couple of deals, hopefully that will be finalized soon. Um, we've been looking in Ohio, um, uh, Illinois, actually looking at some social equity there, which is super interesting. Um, and, uh, where else have we been looking? We look anywhere, really. I mean, the, the funny thing is when people, uh, you know, about cannabis is they just say, uh, you know, if it's a limited license market or, an unlimited market, and then they just brushstroke it. That's like, well, that's nonsense because some of these unlimited markets have limited markets within their unlimited market. So, you know, a municipality may only have so many licenses. So, if you can get a good license in a good location because it's just basic retail one on one, that can be a really good performing store. Um, we do look at it differently than probably standard venture does. We're not just going to wait five years and see what happens. Um, so, we have a different kind of structured approach with that kind of investing. Um, and that's been the big focus. Um, most tech is tough. We've done a little bit additional tech in the fund and we're not going to, I don't see us really doing anything more 
all the tech we've seen coming out is just iterative. It's it's a feature. It's not really standalone, and it's coming against some pretty big incumbents at a time where there's just not not enough capital uh, to really try to go and compete. So we're just not interested in trying to bring in another uh, solution that's not really going to change the dynamic for any of these operators. So we've you know like I said, we had some some pieces that we did do because we felt those were truly differentiated offerings, but we haven't seen much else since then. Um, and also the valuations have just been, you know, and some of these tech companies are, are just ridiculous. I mean, they still think they're like 2018, 2019, 2021, you know, kind of mindset, you know, this, like, that's what I said before, like the hundred X is gone forever, probably for our lifetimes. I don't suspect we'll see hundred X anymore because the amount of dead companies coming out of Silicon Valley will probably sufficiently squash that ridiculous mentality. We were, oh, we just were so frustrated through that whole cycle because we just like knew it was going to be, you know, a real pain in the ass on the backside. Um, so we'd like to see normalized valuations. We are, you know, entry is important to us. Structure is important to us. Um, the governance is key. You know, I, I'm a big fan of, of Berkshire, um, Berkshire Hathaway, Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger have just been for decades, just talking about the importance of management teams that care about their shareholders. And it's really hard to find in venture because a lot of them just are too young. They have not been experienced as maybe our first time founders. So they don't really understand what that means. Um, certainly when times are good, everybody feels good, but you know, the reality of their, um, you know, how they view things when things get bad and it's, it's inevitable. There's no, every company goes through hard places and it's how they work through that, how they work through that with their board and their shareholders, um, shows how good they are. And most don't, uh, that's just the reality, but that's, but it is important to us to try to find people that, um, do believe that. Um, and I think we've done a pretty good job, you know, you know, we've got across all of our funds, we've got some real gems in there where they do think like that. You love all your children equally, but some children just a little more. Are there anybody, any, any portfolio companies that you want to shout out to just say, look, these guys are, they have so far exceeded what you and Emily thought they were going to do, not necessarily just from performance, but, you know, you made mention earlier of a CEO who has grown so much as a person, you know, are there others in your portfolio that you go like, wow, that woman just really took off in ways that I never expected that she would. Well, we'll start there. I'll start with my sister. I mean, it's been amazing to see her, you know, come from a, the background she had, you know, uh, psychology and market research consulting. And I think she's a pretty badass investor. You know, I don't want to be on the other side of the table from Emily in a board meeting because she's very smart and she's got a hell of a memory. So she, you know, she gets the job done. She's very good at what she does. And um, so it's been very impressive to watch her grow and, and become like that. So there's that. Um, I, you know, it's been really cool to see uh headset, um, you know, they just crossed the $50 billion mark of tracked transactions. When we started, I, I thought a billion was a big number. Now we're at 50. So that, like, that's just crazy. And now that they're doing this stuff with AI, it's just unlocking all kinds of potential 
from those years of building that data platform. So that's that was a world that I had no idea um, how to analyze it. That was really Emily was like, that it's going to be a huge deal. So we got to be in data. So that's that that's been her, you know, a lot of her work, um, which has been very cool to see. Um, I, I'll give a shout out to um, to work. Um, again, I've been on the board of that company. Um, you know, a couple of years ago, we lost the founder um, very tragically, and and it was a very scary moment. Um, you know, I was he was a friend. You know, I was an early investor. You know, we we were friends, and so to lose somebody like that um, at a time where these companies are still pretty fragile uh, was just a very good uh, lesson around you know, professional leadership. We had a really good board and we all leaned in and the company is kicking ass. It's got a great leadership. Um, it's built a hell of a position in the industry. And, um, you know, it's got metrics that I think a lot of tech in our space would love to have from a margin profile, from a cash flow profile. Um, and so that's, you know, a lot of credit to the people that leaned in hard there when it felt very, very hard to do. Um, well, that was an impressive moment. Um, yeah. And I mean, we've seen, we've unfortunately had to, we make hard decisions too. Like we'll also, you know, when the companies are, are not surviving, you know, we make the hard decision of, I mean, if we even can invest any further, but we'll say no too. we're not going to put more money in and chase more money. I mean, there's a lot of investors in the space, unfortunately, that will, will keep companies alive that shouldn't be. Um, because they are afraid of the markdown. Um, I'd say that's one of the things that, as painful as it is, we'll mark stuff down. We'll mark stuff to, to total loss. Um, it's hard, but it's a part of the job. It's the job that's got to be done. And, and, mm -hmm. I, and I would like to see more of the venture industry in this space do that um, instead of just piling on more and more invested capital that will never see a return. Um, just to try to kick the can to maybe be able to raise another fund because they don't want to show uh, a loss. So, oh, yeah, that so we'll and that, that capital too. could be used for other companies who are doing really great things and building management and, and all of that stuff. So that's, it's a shame to see that good money after bad. Exactly. Um, I do have to say you guys are like sibling relationship goals. I mean, I have a great relationship with my brother, but the, the fact that you guys are, are so close and you've built this business together um, it is really amazing um, and wonderful to see. Are you like, what is Thanksgiving like your house? Like, are your, like, is, is the rest of your family like, oh, shut up about cannabis already? Um, I, for years, yes. Um, <laughs> um, I think we've gotten better. And then you so. just said, here, have another edible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> here, doing yeah. market research. <laughs> Inevitably, it comes up, but we try our best to try to when it's family time, it's family time because um, we talk about it. So I, we talk about it all day, every day. Well, we don't get to talk about it all day together as much as we used to. Um, but uh, but we just yeah, we try to make sure if we're out sailing with with family or we're at, you know, uh, Thanksgiving or, you know, whatever holidays together. Like we've got a, another sibling uh, and her husband actually does a lot of work in the space, James Marion. If, You've heard of him. He does a lot of legal work. Um, but we have a, uh, they have a, a daughter, so our, our niece. So obviously we're, you know, trying to be consumed with other things than work when we're not, uh, when we're not doing the, you know, the cannabis stuff all day. 
but it, it always comes up, right? I mean, it's inevitable for out at an event with family, friends or whatever, you know, someone's always got something to say about something. So we're, we're inevitably have a, at least a portion of the evening will be, you know, it's like, you really want to talk about this? Okay, here we go. Yeah. So. That's great. Lewis, are you? Well, I, I'm, I, I got nothing. I got well, you. Well, actually, no, I do, no, I do have, wait, 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 no, I do have one more question for you, Morgan. So um, we always, we try to ask this question um, of everyone. We don't always get to it, but if you, um, what's the biggest story that's not being told in cannabis? Like if you were to open up the Financial Times tomorrow, the Wall Street Journal or, or CNBC, like watch on CNBC, like what, what story do you want to see on this industry? What story do I want to see on CNBC? That hasn't been told. So like, you know, the yeah. uncovered gems of the industry. We have seen and we have worked with now um, some mainstream Silicon Valley venture firms in some of our tech companies. Um, a couple of years ago, they were, you know, just so negative on the space. You know, oh, the growth is too low. Oh, these companies are, you know, where's the TAM, you know, kind of all that stuff because their other stuff was doing so well. Well, guess what? Most of the rest of their portfolios look like shit. And the cannabis companies that have done the hard work and made the cuts early and that are now growing again and growing profitably, even at these very low ARR rates, these are now their favorite companies. So that's what's not being talked about on CNBC. Because so all they you want, want the headline will... to be, I told you so. <laughs> yes. or, or how about this how how cannabis how cannabis venture funds outperformed silicon valley yeah i mean it's it's uh you know there's some real investors that are making and real companies in this space and uh you know right now everyone just wants to talk about ai because that's the thing that's working so they don't want to talk about all the other shit that's failing but ai is the only thing that's working in silicon valley right now for the most part and then there's cannabis because we have lived this life of discipline. So we've had to build real businesses. Um, do you know uh, the venture capitalist uh, Ho Nam? Have you ever heard that name? I have not. Lewis is not exact. Uh, yes. <laughs> so a, he this is, is an audio medium, Lewis. <laughs> so he's great. I forgot. Um, because what it's the. Uh, it's the fox versus the what is it? Um, the hedgehog, right? And um, I feel like he, if he saw what we do in cannabis, he'd be like, "That's awesome!" And he's done phenomenal. And he's done. He's been in some names that we all know, but he's done a lot in a lot of names that people don't know because his approach is just so different. And it's so disciplined and focused on building real businesses and thinking about the long term. Um, and I think that's, you know, we've been kind of forced on that earlier than some of these other cycles, especially at a time when money was so free. It was never free for us. It's We've had moments where it was like a little bit hot, but it's been largely not. And um, so, yeah, so I think it's, you know, if it, I think the headline is, you know, if you want to know how to build a real business, if you can do it in cannabis, you probably can do it anywhere. Uh, it's a very Frank Sinatra thought. <laughs> Morgan, 
first of all, thank you for taking the time with us. Um, this has been great. And we would definitely love to have you back um, sometime in next year, uh, probably around either the beginning of the suit or when, when final arguments have finished, just so that we can get an update. Um, and also, if anything happens, like we get a rescheduling, safer passes, you have something that you want to tell us. Just tell us and we'll have you back because this was a really fabulous conversation. Um, we always think that there is such value talking to people who are investing in the space in a material way and helping shape these companies. You know, we didn't get into the conversation about what does a role of a, a venture capitalist play in shaping a company from a day-to-day level? And I think that would be something interesting to talk about in the future. Um, and I'm sure you have lots of ideas that we just didn't get to touch on, but we're at the hour mark and we want to be respectful of your time and um, respectful of our audience. So thank you so much. A huge thanks to Morgan Paxia, co-founder of Poseidon Investment Management, which you can find over at PoseidonAssetManagement.com. And as always, thanks to you for listening. If you'd like to chat with us, you can find us on Twitter with the handle at the underscore Green Rush or on Instagram at the Green Rush underscore podcast. Or you can just drop us an email at greenrush at kcsa.com. We're always looking for feedback and guest ideas. And also, don't forget to subscribe to the Green Rush in your favorite podcast app if you have not yet already. 